Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 3, Chapter 5, The Warning Steve Ames walked into the hotel dining room accompanied by a young Navy lieutenant. He spotted the boys immediately and waved. Rick breathed a sigh of relief. There he is. We can turn this whole business over to him and then get out of here, Scotty returned. The events of the night before had culminated in two phone calls, one by the hotel manager to the police, the other by Rick to Steve Ames. However, the duty officer at the UDT base had replied that Ames was not available. Rick had then asked for intelligence, and his query had gotten fast results. Steve Ames didn't show up, but the Navy Shore Patrol did. The SPs had conferred with the local police, and the affair had ended with the shadow and the stranger, whom Scotty had potted in the shoulder, being carried off by both groups. First, however, the senior shore patrol officer had listened to their story, then instructed the boys, Wait for Steve Ames. Talk to no one else. The police won't ask any questions. After conferring, the Spindrift group decided to go ahead with their plans. The scientists were anxious to transfer their activities to Clipper Key, not only to get on with their vacation, but to get the boys away from the mysterious danger that dogged their footsteps in Charlotte Amalie. The scientists had departed at dawn in the water which, after extracting a promise from Rick and Scotty that they would not stir from the hotel until Steve Ames contacted them, and that they would fly at once to Clipper Key. The wait had been a long one. It was now nearly noon, and the boys were hungry because their breakfast had been at daybreak, and they were ordering lunch. Steve Ames sat down and motioned the lieutenant to his seat. Jimmy, this is Rick Brandt and Don Scott. Boys, this is Lieutenant Kelly. Have you ordered lunch? We were just looking over the menu, Rick replied. Fine, we'll join you. The four consulted the menus and then ordered. Steve turned to Kelly. Jimmy, being the athletic type, you've probably never heard of the Spindrift Scientific Foundation. The lieutenant, a heavily tanned young man with crisp black hair, shook his head. It's a reputable, highly competent, and conservative group of some of the best scientific brains in the country. But somehow, these two got attached to it. They're not very conservative, although they're competent, especially at getting into trouble. Kelly gave the boys a friendly grin. If he talks that way, he must like you. The boys grinned back. The lieutenant was likable. All right, last time I saw you two, Rick was lying across the legs of the guy who had been tailing me. Next thing I hear, two men, we've been keeping an eye on here, were in the Hooskow, one with a slug in his shoulder. I also heard some kind of wild tales of jumping out of windows. Come on, fill in the details. Rick started from the moment they first noticed that a shadow had picked them up. He told the story in careful and accurate detail, knowing that Steve's trained mind might find significance in things that meant nothing to him. Now and then, Scotty elaborated on a point. When Rick concluded the recital, Steve cupped his chin in one hand and stared at them thoughtfully. Kelly complimented them. Sounds as if you took care of things like real professionals both in the water and in the hotel. I must say, I wish my people would learn to give reports like that. The boys thanked him, and Scotty added, 
I don't suppose you can tell us anything about what you do. Sure I can. I'm not one of Steve's hush-hush crew. I'm a simple Navy lieutenant. Rick chuckled. In other words, you can't tell us, Steve said. He's an executive officer of the UDT group here, and he's group intelligence officer. I might also add he's brighter than he looks. Then what do you make of this business? Scotty inquired. I'm not that bright, Kelly replied. Seriously, this one has me stumped. First of all, it's easy to understand why a shadow picked you up. After all, it must have been obvious that you knocked Steve's tail off. So they simply picked you up instead, hoping that you'd lead them back to Steve, or that you might be important in some way they couldn't understand. It's nice to have someone do my thinking for me, Steve said. Carry on, Lieutenant. Aye, aye, sir. The tail stuck with you. When your party split in two, we decided to stay with you instead of Zircon and Briati. There could be two reasons. First, you were the ones who contacted Steve on the street. Second, you stayed at the waterfront while the others went off in a taxi. I like the second reason better because of what happened later. What about you, Steve? I'm with you. Go ahead. Well, at this point, I get lost. You put on your gear and swam out, not with any particular destination in mind, but looking for a rock or a coral head or something of the kind where you could see fish. The shadow watched you, suddenly got excited, grabbed a boat, and tried to run you down. Steve grinned at the boys. In fact, he got so excited, he stole a boat right out from under the owner's nose. What do you think of that? Rick scratched his head. We'd about decided he was either desperate or stupid. I guess he was both? Kelly continued. Point is, what made him desperate? It could only have been one thing as I see it. You were getting close to something, and he was afraid you'd find it. So he lost his head. That's borne out by the remark his pal made last night, that he'd pulled enough stupid stunts for one day. But what could we have been getting close to? I don't know. Whatever it was, it isn't there now. Rick and Scotty sat up straight, and Scotty demanded, How do you know? Steve smiled. Because a team of Navy frogmen went over the entire area inch by inch this morning. At the boys' surprised looks, Kelly explained, You told the shore patrol enough to get us interested. We put teams in the water at daylight. There's nothing there. But there could have been, Scotty pointed out. If they suspected we knew about it, they could have removed it yesterday afternoon or last night. Correct, Steve agreed. They were worried too. Otherwise, why call on you last night? Steve paused while the waiter served them. The conclusion is this. Something they value is in the water near where you swam. You met me yesterday morning, and they had already identified me, which means they must have agents in Washington who warned them Yannick was moving in on the case. Since it's no secret that I'm with the outfit, they could peg me easily. When you swam out toward that object, whatever it was, they were convinced that somehow Yannick had learned about it. The tail got desperate and tried to knock you off. Then last night, they tried to find out what you knew and how. Who are they? Rick asked. If I knew that, I'd wrap the case up and go home. Jimmy has been working on it for a week, but he hasn't got any answers yet. I've been here 24 hours, and I know even less. Could you identify the two men? Scotty queried. 
Yeah, both are small fry, both local, and both obviously green at this kind of business. Otherwise, you'd be a pair of real cold turkeys by now. That was true, Rick knew. Experienced agents wouldn't have given him and Scotty the chance that they'd seized. Those men must know what was under the water there, Scotty said. Not necessarily. They just knew it was important. And they may have been ordered to protect it. But your former shadow was on the griddle all night and told all he knew. It wasn't much. He didn't even know who had hired him. He wasn't stalling, either. What's the next step? Rick wanted to know. Jimmy and I will drive you to the plane, and then you take off for Clipper Key. And you stay there until your vacation is over. Do you have a shortwave radio, by the way? Yeah, why? Rick had an all-wave battery portable. Monitor the Navy command frequency. Here, I'll write it down for you. Listen every night at 6 for 5 minutes. If I want you, I'll send a message. I don't think I will, but it won't do any harm to set up a schedule. Steve lowered his voice. Now listen to me. This thing is big. The two you ran up against yesterday were not good samples. We're dealing with some tough professionals. I don't know who they are, but from what I've seen, I can tell you they're dangerous. So you two are to stay out of this case. That is an order. Stay on Clipper Key and have fun. I can add a small note to that, Lieutenant Kelly said. I'm new here. I was ordered down here from Norfolk only a week ago. First-class intelligence officer had my job. He turned up in a hospital in the British Virgins after being missing for two days. He had a fractured skull. He still doesn't know what happened to him, and neither do we. Okay, Steve said flatly. I appreciate the way you handled things yesterday, but that is the end, as far as you're concerned. Get out and stay out. And that's final. Chapter 6 The Deadly Tank The sky wagon droned smoothly through a series of figure eights as Rick and Scotty inspected every inch of Clipper Key and its surrounding waters. While Rick flew, Scotty marked off the landmarks on the chart of the island that Dr. Ernst had provided. I wish we could spot the wreck of the maiden hand, Scotty remarked. It's too deep, Rick said. We can't see bottom at 20 fathoms, even in water as clear as this. I've got everything important marked. Let's say we land and look over our property. Okay, I'll shoot the beach while you look for coral heads. We don't want to snag a pontoon. The boys had already identified their house. It was set at the edge of the palms, about 50 yards inland from the beach. It looked fine. There was a small dock to which the water which could be tied up when the scientists arrived. Rick estimated that Tony and Zircon would arrive about sundown, two hours hence. The boys had flown over the water witch en route from St. Thomas. Apparently the scientists were enjoying the trip. Zircon had been sprawled in the cockpit while Tony trawled for fish. I'm a little surprised there wasn't something wrong with the plane, Rick observed. He and Scotty had gone over the sky wagon from propeller hub to rudder, fearful that the unknown enemy might have sabotaged it but there was no sign of any tampering. However, the inspection had taken so long that it was late afternoon before they got away. It was significant, and perhaps a little ominous, that Steve and Jim Kelly had assigned a pair of husky shore patrol men with forty-five caliber sidearms to stay with them until the plane actually took off. 
Maybe the two men who came after us were acting without orders, Scotty replied. Maybe the real brains of the gang aren't even interested in us. I hope you're right. See any coral heads? Although most coral growth was limited to the reef area, outcroppings of coral called heads had grown up toward the surface in some places. There were none in the stretch of water before the beach house where Rick planned to land. Water's clear. Pick your direction. There's not enough wind to make any difference. I'll land parallel to the beach. Rick turned south down the center of the island. When he had reached the right position, he cut the throttle and the nose of the sky wagon dropped. He banked tightly, reversing course, until the plane was headed north, a hundred yards out from the beach. He let the plane feel its way toward the water, then felt the first bump as the pontoons touched. In a moment, they were down, and Rick swung the plane to taxi in toward their new home. Scotty was already stripping off his shoes and socks. As the pontoons touched bottom a few yards from the shore, Scotty climbed out. Rick cut the gun while his pail pulled the plane up onto the beach. Rick got out and waited until Scotty slipped his shoes on again. Then they walked to the cottage. The door was unlocked. A few people came to Clipper Key, and locks weren't considered necessary. The boys pushed open the front door and walked in. There was a large living room and three bedrooms, each with twin beds. In the rear of the cottage was a kitchen with kerosene stove and kerosene refrigerator. A 50-gallon drum out back provided the fuel supply, which was piped in through copper tubing. Rick checked the fuel. The tank was full. He read the simple instructions, tacked to the wall over the refrigerator, then lit the burner. There were frozen food, soft drinks, as well as dairy products among their supplies, packed in dry ice in the water witch's food locker. The refrigerator would be cold enough for the supplies by the time the boat arrived. For bathing in fresh water, there was an outdoor shower. A shower head rigged to a five-gallon drum and supported on a frame of two-by-four wooden members. A canvas curtain gave privacy. Other sanitary facilities were equally primitive but effective. Scotty opened the door of a lean-to shed on the rear of the house. We can stow our diving gear in here. There's a bench, too. Looks as though the owner used the place for cleaning fish and stowing his fishing equipment. They walked around to the front of the house where there was a small porch. A few wicker chairs were upended against the wall. The boys righted them and sat down. Wow, this is the life, Rick observed. Look at that view. They looked from the porch down to the sandy beach, past the pier and the sky wagon, to water that was almost glassy calm. The water continued in a smooth stretch for about 500 yards out to the reef. Light breakers foamed along the reef and beyond. The water was a blue waste to the horizon. A quarter mile south, a break in the reef marked a passage where boats could enter. Somewhere out beyond the reef was the wreck of the maiden hand. In his mind, Rick planned how they would go about finding it. The first step was to rig some kind of underwater towing boards. Then he and Scotty, equipped with their aqua lungs, would be towed behind the water witch, scanning the bottom as they went. He wasn't worried about finding material for the towing boards. Any kind of planks would do. Or they could even make a tow board out of a fallen log, although that would be harder to control. Come on, he invited. Let's walk through the palms. We need a few planks. Might as well get them now. 
By the time the scientists approached the pier, the boys had explored the central part of the island and had returned to the cottage lugging planks found in the ruin of a cottage apparently blown down by some long-past hurricane. They dropped the planks beside the house and hurried to catch the line the zircon threw. Then they warped the water witch to the dock. All hands turned to, and in short time supplies were unloaded and stored. Beds were made with linen and blankets loaned by Dr. Ernst, and the cottage began to take on an inhabited look. While Tony Briotti began preparations for dinner, the boys carried their aqualung equipment to the shed at the rear of the cottage and began to check it over. Since their lives would depend on proper functioning of the equipment, they inspected the regulators carefully, checking the condition of the neoprene flaps. Once checked, the regulators were hung on nails on the shed walls out of harm's way. The next step was to inspect the tanks. Rick had already looked them over, but for the sake of safety, the boys did it again. There were six of them, each of 70 cubic feet capacity. There was an advantage to this particular capacity at the depth where they were expected to dive. A diver could work only 15 minutes at 120 feet without requiring decompression, and 70 cubic feet of air would last just long enough. Double tanks would have meant that the boys would be able to stay down nearly twice as long, but that would also have meant the nuisance of wading through the decompression period of about 13 minutes, 10 feet below the surface on the ascent. For this reason, the boys planned to dive with single tanks, leaving the spares on the surface. Of course, to get even 15 minutes of diving at 20 fathoms, the tanks had to be filled to capacity. When full, they were under enormous internal pressure of over 2,000 pounds per square inch. The tanks had been filled to spindrift, but the boys decided to check them again in case there was some leakage through the valves during shipment. Scotty swung one tank upright and prepared to attach the pressure gauge. Rick, inspecting another tank for bumps that might have weakened the tank wall, saw him do it. For a moment, Rick continued his inspection. Then what he had seen suddenly registered, and he yelled, Scotty! The valve! In that instant, as Scotty attached the pressure gauge, the valve blew out. The entire valve assembly and the pressure gauge, propelled by the tremendous pressure of the tank, blew straight upward, ripping clear of Scotty's hand and taking a patch of skin along. The ascending assembly, traveling with bullet speed, clipped a lock of hair from his bent head. Scotty yelled, Run! The tank, its air free to escape, writhed and turned, then fell over on its side. It was like an inflated balloon turned loose to fly around the room. Air jetted from it with terrific velocity, so that the tank was, for the period while its air lasted, a true rocket. It struck the wall of the shed and went through it like paper, smashed into a stud and caromed lightly so that its trajectory was altered enough to drive it directly at Rick. Rick fell flat and it went over his head, just grazing him, then flew into the palm grove. It hit a palm a slanting blow and turned upward, shooting high into the air, clipping off the top of another palm as it went. As the boys watched horrified, it climbed straight up, then, its high pressure nearly exhausted, it turned leisurely and plunged back into the grove, almost burying itself in the sandy soil. Boys sat down and stared weakly at each other. For the first time, Rick noted that Scotty's hand was bleeding. He said shakily, 
Let me look at that. The scientist rushed out of the house and demanded to know what had happened. The tank had blown through its devastating course so fast they hadn't even had time to get outdoors. Zircon bandaged Scotty's hand with supplies from the first aid kit. While the boys told them what had happened, Tony said, Very careless, leaving a valve loose like that. Rick told him positively, It wasn't left unscrewed, Tony. We always use a wrench on those valves because of the high pressure. We know it's dangerous. And it wasn't like that yesterday. I checked the tanks when we stowed them on the boat. Scotty gestured toward the other tanks. Better take a look at the others. Rick did so and gave a low whistle. The valves had all been loosened on them. They were in place only by a turn or two of the threads. They could have come off at any time, he said grimly. Any rough handling could have knocked a valve out. If that happened on the boat, the tank would have gone right through the bottom or the side. It was just lucky that Scotty and I weren't killed. Zircon wordlessly found the valve wrench and got to work, screwing the assemblies back into place. The others watched silently until Scotty said, Well, at least we're out of St. Thomas. There won't be any more sabotage. Right? Chapter 7. The Derelict Rick and Scotty were up at dawn the next morning. They didn't bother with anything so prosaic as breakfast. Instead, they collected masks and snorkels and flippers for a preliminary dip. They didn't use the lungs. Those were to be saved for more important work than casual swimming. For this first swim, each boy selected a spear gun. Scotty chose the same light spring gun he had used to save them from the shadow, while Rick took his favorite gun, a four-strand rubber-powered weapon that packed a terrific wallop. They belted on their knives and blew up their plastic floats. These were essential for resting, if necessary, and for bringing home their catch, if any. Once a fish was speared, it was important to get it out of the water as soon as possible, since blood would bring sharks or barracuda if there were any in the neighborhood. Come on, Rick said impatiently. Let's get out of here. I'm coming. Scotty finished coiling up the light line he used to tether the float to his belt and they stepped into the water. The temperature was just right. They ducked under, then put on their equipment. Scotty pulled a rubber glove over his injured hand. Pushing their floats ahead of them, faces down in the water, they started for the reef. Rick watched the bottom carefully. It was clear sand with no sign of life other than an occasional conch or other shellfish. This was to be expected, since marine life tended to collect around reefs, rocks, pilings, wrecks, and similar things. As they approached the reef, coral heads and outcroppings began to appear, and with them, fish. Rick hooted for Scotty's attention, then lifted his head and let his mouthpiece fall free. Let's go outside, he called as Scotty looked up. The other boy nodded agreement. Both were anxious to examine the reef. The surf was light. They crossed over the reef by towing their floats and timing their movements through the breakers. Once beyond the point where the waves broke, the water was fairly calm, with only light surges from the passing waves. Rick looked down and saw the reef drop away. It shelved off perhaps twenty feet down, and beyond them the shelf fell away into the depths. He looked into the blueness with a stirring of excitement. To find the maiden hand, 
they would have to swim into that mysterious blue realm. Scotty hooted and Rick looked and followed the direction of his pointing arm. There, browsing around the shelf below, was a handsome red snapper, perhaps 15 inches long. They had stopped in Miami and Rick had noticed that red snapper prices were about the same as those for steak. There was no doubt that the fish was very good eating. He gestured to Scotty to go after it, then floated motionless watching. Scotty put the loader over the tip of his spear and pushed it down, cocking the gun. Then, without a splash, he slid under the water. Rick watched as his fins propelled him slowly toward the snapper. Scotty was moving slowly because this was the prime rule in underwater hunting. As he swam, he extended the spear gun, aiming over the short barrel. The snapper stopped browsing, his dorsal fin suddenly erect, a sign of alarm. But he didn't move because he was not yet sure the big invader was an enemy. Before he could make up his mind, Scotty fired. The spear took the fish right behind the gills. He gave a quick spurt that brought the line humming from its spool. Scotty followed quickly, caught the shaft, and then sped upward to where Rick waited. Good shot, Rick complimented him as Scotty caught his float. Together they took the fish off the shaft and examined him with some pride. Their first catch off Clipper Key was a good one. The snapper was pink and firm-fleshed. He would make good eating. Rick put his face down in the water again while Scotty secured the catch to his float. As he did so, he saw a target and hooted for attention. Scotty joined him, and they looked down to where a barracuda hovered motionless. The cuda was perhaps two and a half feet long, not as big as such predators went, but big enough. Scotty motioned to Rick to get him. Obviously, the fish had been attracted by the blood or the struggles of the snapper. Rick hoped that his big brothers wouldn't join him. This one was plenty big enough. While Scotty held both floats, Rick charged his gun, pulling back the strong rubbers a pair at a time. Then he checked his safety line, filled his lungs, and went under. The barracuda hovered, waiting. Rick knew that his apparent disinterest could change to lightning flight. Few fish were so fast. He followed Scotty's example, moving slowly toward the quarry. He was a dozen feet down now, and in the lessened light, the barracuda loomed large, a slim arrow of a fish poised for flight. The spear gun was extended, the spear point nearing the firing range. Rick planned to shoot from about six feet. He doubted he could get any closer. Flippers propelling him gently, he closed. Now he could see the pointed jaws that contained razor-edged teeth. The fish was watching him closely, but without apparent fear. The barracuda head was squarely in his sights. Rick squeezed the trigger. For a moment, Rick thought he had missed. Then the safety line ran out, and the jerk almost pulled the gun from his hands. He was running out of breath, too. Quickly, he planed for the surface, feeling the fury on the end of his line. He broke water, gulped air, and dove again. He pulled in the line until he saw the fish struggling. He had nearly missed. The harpoon had taken the barracuda near the tail, fortunately hitting the spine. Rick pulled him in, hand over hand, then gripped his spear by the extreme end. He had no desire to close with those slashing, dangerous jaws. Holding fast to the spear, he shot to the surface again. 
Scotty was waiting, knife in hand. As Rick extended the spear toward him, the keen knife flashed across the Kuda's spine just behind the gills. Rick tossed his gun onto the float. Then together they heaved the fish up beside it. Spindrift was never like this, Scotty said grinning. Rick gulped air and grinned back. A hail from the shore reached them. They turned and saw Tony Briotti. He was waving a frying pan and a signal for breakfast. Suddenly, Rick realized he was famished. Let's go, he said. We'll trade these in for bacon and eggs. It was nearly noon before they got into the water again. The first part of the morning was spent in fashioning sea sleds from the planks that the boys had gathered. This was simple enough, but it took a little time. First, the planks were cut to the proper length, then two of them were nailed together. A bridle was arranged so that they could be towed, and spare weight belts and weights were used to counteract buoyancy. They were very much like aquaplanes, commonly towed behind motorboats, but much cruder and designed to go under rather than remain on the surface. Two long ropes were arranged so that the sleds could be towed on either side of the water witch. Once this was done, the boys rechecked their equipment, attached the regulators to the tanks, and carried them to the beach. Zircon would pilot the boat, following the 120-foot mark on the chart. Tony would act as tender at the stern, while Rick and Scotty would ride the sleds. The first leg would take them through the reef channel, then south to the tip of the island, reverse course and north again, staying at the 20-fathom mark. Zircon was sure he would be able to follow the prescribed course by judging his distance from the reef. When all was in readiness, they loaded their gear aboard the water witch, including the spare tanks. Only the runaway tank was missing, and Rick had determined that its wild flight had not weakened it. The valve and pressure gauge had been recovered after a considerable search, and the tank could be refilled with the others. Zircon took the water witch through the reef and the boys donned their equipment, while Tony swung the ladder outboard. Rick checked his own straps and then those of Scotty, while Scotty returned the favor. Then each checked the flow of air through his mouthpiece and made sure the reserve rod was in the up position. This done, they entered the water. Tony tossed the boards over and made sure the lines were secure. Rick and Scotty paddled the boats to the extreme length of the lines, then separated as much as the lines allowed. They were about 30 feet apart and 100 feet behind the boat. They waved their readiness to Tony, who relayed the go-ahead to Zircon. The boat started slowly. Rick moved forward on his board, and the weighted board tilted down. It acted as a hydrofoil, its forward motion pulling it deeper into the water. Rick waited until he was only 10 feet from the bottom, then shifted his weight back again. Obediently, the board went upward and raced through the surface. Rick moved forward again just in time to keep from breaking through the surface. By adjusting the weight, he could keep the board level or go up or down. It wasn't easy, and he had to fight the board level almost constantly. Bubbles rose from the regulator between his shoulder blades as he breathed rhythmically. The lung performed effortlessly, giving him as much air as he needed. He felt the pressure in his ears as he steered the board toward the bottom. There was an instant of pain before his ears adjusted. The bottom was sandy. To his right, he saw the wall of the reef. 
and once a startled snook shot out of his way. To his left he could see Scotty. Before he knew it, the boat had throttled down, a signal that they were at the southern end of the reef. He tilted upward and surfaced. Tony called, How is it? Great, Rick called back. But we'll need lots more line. It was shallow on the way down, but if we try to go any deeper, the angle of the line will make the boards come up. You should try it, Scotty said. Honestly, Tony is wonderful. I'll try it a little later, Tony promised. I'm giving you all the line we have, about 300 feet each. If you can't make it, surface. We'll have to splice the two lines together and use just one board. Zircon came to the stern and bellowed, You forgot these! He tossed two fishing floats and coils of line. Those are in case they found the wreck. Whoever spotted it was to drop off his board and secure the line to the wreck and let the float rise to the surface. In that way, they would have a guide. Each boy took one of the units and fastened it to his weight belt. We're off, Zircon called. Are you ready? The boys yelled that they were. Rick fit his mouthpiece and checked the seal of his mask. Scotty did the same. Then both tilted their boards and slid under. On the northbound leg, they had trouble keeping their boards down because of the tendency of the lead rope to pull the front of the boards up. But by crawling far forward, they just managed. They were deeper than they had ever gone before, but Rick felt no sensation of fright or strangeness. It was a green world, not dark, but not bright. The light was subdued, filtered by the fathoms of water. The bottom was mostly clear sand, dotted now and then by patches of growth. They did not see many fish, or perhaps their eyes were not adjusted to the subdued light. Scotty was close to the reef on the northbound leg, while Rick was about twenty feet farther out. For long moments, there was only the sensation of rushing through the water, the distant throb of the engines, and the sound of their own bubbles. Then ahead, Rick saw a mass of growth and tilted his board upward just in time to clear it. Scotty hooted once, then again. Rick turned in time to see his pal's board leap ahead, free of Scotty's weight. Suddenly, fear gripped him. Had Scotty been caught? Instantly, he released his own board and saw it scoot for the surface. He reversed his course and swam rapidly back. The obstruction he had cleared was dead ahead. And there were fish, so many, that they seemed like a swarm of flies around it. The biggest was not more than five inches long. Then he saw Scotty. His friend was fastening the float line to a projection. Rick's heart leapt. What he thought was a rock formation on the sea floor was the wreck of a ship. Scotty had recognized it and dropped off. The maiden hand? He hooted and Scotty looked up. The other boy shook his head. It wasn't the maiden hand then. But how did Scotty know? In a moment when he joined the other young man, he saw the curling edges of steel plate. This was a steel ship, and not a very large one at that. He estimated its length as not more than a hundred feet. Still, it was a wreck, and their first. There at twenty fathoms, he and Scotty shook hands solemnly, while the tiny fish swam around them like curious gnats. 
Scotty finished tying his line and unwound it from the wooden spool. The float rose upward and vanished overhead. They heard the throb of the returning boat, and Rick hooted twice the signal to surface. Scotty nodded and they went up, slowly, careful to breathe naturally, not to overtake their small bubbles as the doctrine dictated. In a moment, Rick saw the hull of the boat, propellers barely turning, and knew that Zircon was holding position overhead. They broke water off the side of the water witch, and Rick waited until Scotty hailed the scientists. We found a wreck, but it's a steel ship, Rick yelled. Come aboard, Tony called and helped them up the ladder when they complied. The tanks were cumbersome when they were out of the water. It's a fish paradise, Rick said excitedly. I'm going to get my camera working and take some pictures. you got to go down there and look, both of you. How did you spot it? Zircon asked. Scotty did. I thought it was a rock formation and went over it, but Scotty dropped off. I saw a curled plate, Scotty answered. I knew it wasn't the maiden hand with steel sides, but I didn't think we'd want to pass up a wreck. You were so right, Rick agreed, grinning. A check of their tanks with the gauge showed that only about five minutes diving time remained at the 20-fathom depth, so the regulators were transferred to spare tanks. Tony and Zircon, already in trunks, donned diving gear and followed Scotty's line to the bottom. The boys waited impatiently, Scotty taking the helm to hold the boat in place. Ten minutes later, the scientists surfaced and Rick helped them aboard. Tony removed his mask and grinned. It's as wonderful as you said it was. What kind of ship was it? Tony had been a destroyer skipper during the war and he knew ships. Probably an inter-island cargo carrier of some kind. At any rate, it appears to be a small cargo ship. It's so overgrown with marine growth that the shape is cluttered. It might have been a small tanker. We could explore it from stem to stern, Rick suggested excitedly. Scotty joined them and commented, But not right now. We'll have to go ashore and charge the tanks. There may be time for one more dive this afternoon if we hurry. Besides, Hobart Zircon said with a smile, I'm hungry. Like you said, Rick, diving certainly develops an appetite. They docked, and Tony and Zircon went off to see about preparing sandwiches. The boys decided that rather than carry the tanks back and forth from the pier to the shed, it would be more sensible to bring their small, portable, gas-driven compressor to the pier. Scotty went after it while Rick tied the tanks to the after-rail of the water witch into a position for filling. A yell from Scotty stopped him. He looked up and saw his friend beckon and ran down the pier to the house. The scientists joined him and Scotty at the shed where the compressor had been stored. We've been sabotaged again, Scotty told them flatly. There's oil in the compressor. Are you certain? Zircon pressed close to examine the machine. Yeah, I stumbled over my own feet and tipped the compressor on its side. The oil ran out through the air fitting. Look. Scotty held up his hand and it was smeared with glistening oil. A cold shiver traced its way down Rick's spine. Oil in a compressor was blown into fine particles, too small to see. If that got into an air tank, they would have breathed it in, leaving a thin coating on their lungs. 
The result was a condition almost exactly like pneumonia called lipoid pneumonia. Their special filter designed by Zircon probably would have taken all the oil particles out of the air before it got into the tanks, but that didn't alter the fact that it faced them. Someone had deliberately put oil into the compressor. Someone just didn't want them around. <laughs>